Welcome to Demand Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demond, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demodcast. Man, last week's episode with B.G. Harrison, also known as Marcia Collette, was a fun one. She's a voracious reader who became a writer and taught us a little about white holes in space. If you're as curious as I was, you can give it a listen and let me know what you think. Also, thank you for the reviews. If you listen and like the show, you can head to Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen to your podcast and leave a review. The more reviews we have prove that you're listening and will show up recommended in shows like this. This improves our chances to grow the show and more can join the conversation. And my guest is an author of Afro-Surrealist and Multicultural Sci-Fi and Horror. Z is the winner of the 2016 HWA Stoker Con Scholarship from Hell. That sounds interesting. 2017 BCC Voice Reframing the Other Contest and 2018 AWW Afro Surrealist Writer Award. Z writes a column called Writing While Black for the San Francisco Baby and contributed to the upcoming Slay Stories of the Vampire Noir. Please help me welcome Samiko Salson. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Much appreciation. I saw something I found personally very interesting. You said something along the lines of the characters in your stories are like characters in uh, role-playing games. What are some of your favorites? Mm -hmm. What are some of my favorite role-playing games or characters? Role-playing games. Oh, both. The comic Elf Quest that Richard and Wendy Peeney put out has a role-playing game attached to it. So there's an Elf Quest role-playing game. And I used to play that a lot when I was, you know, really learning how to construct stories. So I'm mostly actually referring to the Elf Quest RPG. I'm mostly referring to that, actually. As in terms of an actual board game role-playing game that I played. But I also enjoy video games that are RPG video games like Final Fantasy and Dragon Age and stuff like that. The way that they construct stories has helped me figure out how to construct stories better as well. What specifically did you learn from those games that helped you construct stories? When I first was, you know, first trying to write, I used to sort of try to make characters like sort of force their movement. And what I learned from playing role-playing games is that you develop the character first, right? You set up the character, you set up the parameters for the character, and you figure out what kind of character you have. And then you figure out the environment the character's in. And those things sort of dictate how the character would interact with the environment. So if you develop a character and develop a setting first, then the characters after a while have their own momentum and they sort of write themselves. It helped me learn um, how to do really, really, really good character development. So now I have very character-centered stories. And by setting their parameters, it just makes it so that it flows better. Are you ready to answer the six questions? Yeah. Question number one. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? When I was five, my dad asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be 
a writer, an artist, or a veterinarian. And then my dad, being who he was, immediately discouraged me from being a veterinarian by telling me how many years you had to go to school to be one and how it wasn't just getting to spend nice, fuzzy time with animals. And sometimes you had to do things that hurt animals and made them feel bad. So, you know, my parents were both uh, liberal, artsy people, and um, (laughs) that's probably why he did that. But I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was four or five years old. And is that something you constantly pursued from then? Oh, no, I definitely did other things. You know, first of all, it's really hard to make uh, money as a writer. So, you know, that's a thing. I was fortunate enough to be able to get a job where I worked for a, a newspaper. So there was a local rock magazine called Rockhead in the Bay Area, and I got a job there when I was like 19. But going backwards now, because I skipped some things, I was very invested in being becoming a writer. So I got on my high school newspaper when I was in ninth grade. The whole time I was in high school, I wrote for my high school newspaper, which was the Daily Bugle. We called, they called it the Daily Bugle after the Spider-Man newspaper. Uh, so I was doing that. I started a fanzine when I was 16 called Sex Kitten. I used to go and see different punk rock bands and write about them. And I started doing cartoons, like little comic strips, when I was like in seventh grade. So I was doing like comic strips when I was in seventh grade. So the whole time I was in junior high and high school, I definitely thought I was going to be an artist and be a writer. And I actually managed to get a job when I was 19 which I had until I was about 22. So this is what happened. When I was 21, the company that I worked for needed an extra person to send to computer repair training classes in order to keep their status as an Apple value-added reseller. So they only had two repair techs and they had to find someone else to send. And they decided that if they sent me because I'm African-American and because I'm a woman, that they would get two affirmative action points. So they decided that they were just going to randomly take me out of my job as a graphic designer and writer for this paper and send me to the repair classes. So I went to the repair classes and I did really, really, really well. So when they found out that I actually had a skill or an aptitude for that, they decided to just take me out of my job and move me over to the repair department. The guy that was sort of running it as a little adjunct to the system sale division taught me his job. So I took over from him. So I ended up becoming the repair manager. I was really, really, really proud to be the repair manager because when you're young and they promote you up, even if they're hardly paying you anything, You're just really proud of being in that position. So I was super proud of being in that position. I went on to be a Apple computer repair technician and systems engineer. And that's what I did through my 20s. And I actually did computer repair uh, work for years and years. The reason that I stopped doing it, well, there were two reasons. One reason was I got sick around around 9-11. I have psychological issues. So I started having problems. I was married and I was trying to adopt and 
I wasn't able to adopt and trying to adopt and trying to conceive put too much pressure on my marriage. So it disintegrated. And then I had a bunch of mental health problems and I couldn't go to work. So I wasn't able to work for a while. And then I went back to work for a while. And then my parents both got cancer. And when both of my parents got cancer, ended up working as my mother's in-home health care worker. I became my mother's in-home health care worker in 2010. And then my father got cancer about two years later. During the period of time when I was my mother's in-home health care worker, I started to develop my writing career. I also was going to college with my mother. So I was taking notes for her. I was, you know, getting paid to be her note taker and stuff like that. And my mother was taking poli sci classes and I was taking English classes. So I went and got an AA in English as my mother's health care worker. So I was going to school with her long enough to actually do this. And I took a whole bunch of creative writing classes and I started to get on the circuit as a writer, going to different conventions and stuff. When both of my parents got cancer, I felt like, you know, you want to be a writer, you should do it now. If you don't do it now, your parents are not going to know about it. And I wanted my parents to, you know, be proud of me as a writer. And I wanted to do it while they were still here. Them getting sick really pushed things. And that's why I went ahead and pursued my ambitions as a writer. Question number two. What do you wish you had known when you first started out? When I first started out, I wish I would have understood the importance of getting people to edit your work and getting people to criticize your work. Eventually, I ended up getting beta readers going to different writing groups where you critique each other's writing and getting editors and getting on imprints where I had an editor. I think that when people first start out, they feel like it's this, I mean, you you know, that's the kind of romanticized view of writing everyone gets from like Jack Kerouac and stuff. They think that it's going to be this big solo pursuit where you're just going to get to know yourself better and that it's all about you, but it is actually very collaborative. Collaborating with others really has improved my writing. So I wish I had known about the importance of this uh, collaboration it would have helped me a lot. But, you know, I learned. Question number three. What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? Wow, a hometown restaurant. Now, I'm not sure I know what a hometown restaurant is, but I guess that that's probably one of the restaurants that has stuff like mashed potatoes and turkey. You know, I actually like to get the turkey dinner. It's kind of like a Thanksgiving dinner. I wonder if that really is my go-to order. I think that I'm, I also really like grilled cheese sandwiches. Like that's my favorite comfort food. Sometimes I just get like a grilled cheese sandwich. The way I always interpret this, because there are some people like um, my wife and I don't eat out terribly much, and my wife's an amazing cook. So I do. Uh-huh. Um, or you know what? I'll use somebody. Uh, I'll use another example. Uh, Valj- I interviewed Valjean uh, Jeffers. That's how I got your name. And she mentioned, especially since you know we're not going out, or you know people aren't going out as much, or shouldn't be, because of our current situation. She mentioned that she likes making shrimp etouffee. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I like Thai food, but I don't think that's probably a hometown restaurant. <laughs> Question number four. What are you curious about? Curious about the uh, progress towards a vaccine for COVID-19. I keep looking at different newspaper articles trying to figure out what the progress is with the scientists that are working on it. Because like, I feel really strongly that once there's a vaccine that there's going to be sort of like this uh, big sort of recovery and our lives going back to normal. So I think about that a lot. And the other thing that I'm curious about is, um, you know, my mom passed away last year in 2019. So I have a lot more curiosity about the afterlife and about different stories that people have about contact that they have had with people who are no longer with us. So I find myself more and more interested in these kind of stories and how well vetted are they and what's going on with that. Yeah, I want to know what's what's next. I want to talk to my mother. You know, I, I loved my mother very much. I still love her, actually, yeah. So I'm curious about that, too. What are your current thoughts um, about it? What are my current thoughts about it? Well, I'm a Christian, and my mother was a Christian. There was the eternal life, you know what I'm saying, of a spiritual being. But then there's whether or not you can actually talk to someone when you're living and then they're not here. And I do talk to my mother a lot. And I really do feel that my mother is communicating with me. So I feel like we're communicating with each other. I have had a lot of dreams over like the last month or so about being with my parents. They're all dreams that are set in the 90s. Me and my parents were living together. And they'll be talking to me and stuff. And I like to believe that that's actually my parents communicating with me from the afterworld, trying to get messages to me. When my dad died, I was driving in the car and I felt that he was sitting in the seat next to me. Like I felt this presence of him and he started to talk to me and he told me, Miki, I have to go now. And he let me know that he was dying. While I was driving, he just started talking to me. And then my grandmother and his brother and sister, um, his brothers and sister who passed on before him, showed up and he left with them. And when I went home, my niece's ex-girlfriend got on the phone. She called me and she said, your dad died and your brother brought him back by uh, doing chest compressions but I don't think he's going to make it, and he died. And then after that, like a week later, I had a dream where I was crying because my niece had died, and then my dad came and patted me on the shoulder and said, Miki, Francesca isn't dead. I'm the one who's dead. And then he talked to me about making sure that I spent more time with my niece and that all of the different frictions in the family got patched up and let me know that that was his wish was that our family would become closer. And I do feel like that was my dad communicating with me. And I feel like when I have dreams and things and my mother's talking to me, that it's really her. So I feel like that. But a friend of mine, you know, who recently died of cancer, uh, was talking to me about it um, when he was living and he said that he talks to dead people too and he said maybe 
they're not really here and maybe they are, we don't really know, but I think that it feels better to, you know, believe that they're here than to not, you know what I'm saying? Because feeling that your loved ones are still with you is more comforting than the idea that they're not, you know, there. So I like to believe that that they're actually communicating with me. Question number five. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? There is, because before we got on the phone, we were talking about my pronouns, and you were talking about how not everybody around the country knows about uh, people that are, you know, that are non-binary and different types of pronouns that people in the transgender community use and stuff, how that works. So, yeah, that's something you could ask me about, I think. What specifically? I use the and her pronouns, and those pronouns are what are called neo-pronouns. People are starting to get really familiar with they, them pronouns, which are not just used by people that are non-binary, but they're very commonly used by non-binary people. So non-binary people are people who have aspects of feminine and masculine aspects and not just the one gender. That's the simplest way to describe that, right? And they, them pronouns is one way that people express that and make sure that people understand that they're not binary. But neo-pronouns are something else that people use. So some people think that neo-pronouns are something that was just invented, but that's not actually true. The neo-pronouns have been um, something that's been under discussion since like the 1850s. The pronouns that I use, they come from Z-Zero pronouns. And that set of pronouns has been around since 1975 and comes from some German words. So the original conversation that was happening back in 1975 was a feminist conversation about people who felt that they were not, they didn't feel that they want to be held to one gender and the expectations around said gender. So that's where that came from. I did not know, I didn't know that the discussion about pronouns had been going on that long. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Because I live in the Bay Area, I have been aware of the discussion for a good 20 or I, yeah, for a good 20 years now because people have been talking about it here for 20 25 years. I don't think that people in some other locations have uh, had these conversations until pretty recently. Why do you think people think women or black people or especially black women don't write horror or shouldn't write horror or can't write horror? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, what? when I was like in my mid-20s, Ice-T had this band called Body Count and I was watching an interview with him and, you know, I'm a goth, right? And he said, you know, black people aren't goths because we're superstitious. So that's like his like feeling. that he had, that he was saying. But I think that um, a lot of people do think like what Ice-T was saying, that black people are afraid of spirits and afraid afraid of the unknown and afraid of monsters and stuff like that. That kind of attitude is why people think that black people don't, you know, write horror. And I think that also, you know, a lot of people feel like a lot of people have an ignorant attitude about black people 
and a bunch of like expectations that are really actually not um, valid. There are a whole bunch of different black horror writers from around the entire African diaspora. And this idea that we're superstitious comes from this idea that, you know, well, one, it comes from the idea that all black people are Christians. We're not all Christians. And some people that I've met in the horror writing world are animists and stuff like that. And some of the people are not American at all. Yeah, they feel like we're all churchy folk that are afraid that uh, we're going to get in trouble if we talk about this type of stuff. So that is part of it. And then there's this whole stereotype of black women that we're all like good church going women that don't get involved with this stuff because that's bad and, and demons and stuff like that. I do think that that's kind of part of what this attitude is coming from. And I think that it erases all kinds of black people, including African-Americans that are from Louisiana that are practicing Voodoo and things like that. I am a Christian, so in a way I hate to say this, but it's sort of this mammy stereotype that people have of this good Bible-thumping Christian black woman who would just never talk about any of these things because God is going to get mad at you. And, and, and I do think that's where people are coming from with that attitude. That sounds familiar. <laughs> that's one of the things that boggles me about stereotypes is when, when I've been asked, well, why do black people I'm like, I don't know. I don't get, it's not my job to vote today. Like we're all monolith and we all think the same or act the same. Do you still run into that quite a bit? Not as much as when I first started, when I first started writing horror novels, they just sit there with their jaw open and they just couldn't understand that I said that I wrote horror. So they would be like, what do you mean? Do you mean science fiction like Octavia Butler? And my mom used to go everywhere with me. So she'd say, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what she means. You know, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to disagree with my mom, but that's not entirely accurate. But then when I uh, wrote 60 Black Women in Horror, I actually did unpack the idea that some of the things that Octavia Butler and Toni Morrison were writing actually were horror. And, you know, that's another reason why people don't think that Black women write horror, okay? It's this idea that everything that we do has to be serious. And this, you know, when I was in college, we were talking about Zora Neely Hurston and the trouble that she got into with Langston Hughes and the rest of the Harlem Renaissance uh, writers who were men. They thought that she was talking too much about home and hearth. They thought that it made black women not seem serious because she was talking about family and taking care of family too much from their point of view. Way back to the Reformation, this idea that you have to write something that's very serious literary fiction that we cannot be frivolous and we cannot write romance novels and we cannot write novels that you pick up and, and, and read for entertainment because we got to prove to everyone that we're serious and we're not flighty. That is also part of the reason why people don't think of black people and especially black women as writing horror. And, you know, as a result, Toni Morrison wrote Beloved, which is very obviously a Southern Gothic horror novel. And 
people didn't see it as, as a horror story, you know? And this idea that only white men write horror is why Stephen King and Peter Straub kept getting awards from the Horror Writers Association like every other year. It would be one of them, year after year, because people saw that as what a horror writer is, and they didn't even pay any attention to Beloved because Toni Morrison wrote it, therefore it had to be another genre. You are in the anthology Slay, Stories of the Vampire Noir. What is your story about? Kind of, I'm kind of looking for the elevator pitch. It's a story about a, okay, gosh, I'm so bad at elevator pitches, but it's a story about a witch, a vampire, and a god. And the M. Pulundu, and I hope I pronounced that right, the lightning bird, so the vampire type is a lightning bird, and the lightning birds are familiars that are the bond of witches. So the witches pretty much control or own them, you know, because they're familiars. And this witch decides that uh, she is going to use this lightning bird. They're shapeshifters, and when they transform, they're very attractive young men to seduce this Greek god. And, you know, he's bisexual, and he's looking for a new partner. And then so she thinks she's going to seduce him and then get a bunch of things from him and control this relationship. And it's basically about their fight over, you know, control of this vampire, you know. It's one of the queer stories that's in there because it's a love triangle between a woman and two men. This power struggle between the two of them over this lightning bird vampire. That's cool. I'm going to have to beg Nicole for a copy of this because I've interviewed three all so far. I'm like, I want to read that. Oh, I want to read that one too. (laughs) Yeah, Nicole is a a true visionary. I think that the whole idea of Slay and different types of vampires from across the diaspora is brilliant. And then most of the people that are in this, this anthology, that are writers in this anthology, are also African diaspora. Not all, but most. So I think it's actually really, really, really cool uh, that she did that. Question number six. If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? Wow. (laughs) Create a new holiday. There are so many, you know, really actually great holidays that should get recognized that I think it would be, you know, like when I was a kid, we were marching to get them to recognize Martin Luther King Day, and they finally did. Now people are are letting people get off work and stuff. And, you know, Malcolm X Day is actually a holiday, but nobody recognizes that. I think maybe I would just go out there and campaign for them to recognize that holiday and a bunch of other holidays um, having to do with black leaders. Kwanzaa, that'll be good. They could recognize Kwanzaa. When I go down to the store, you know, in December, they have all this stuff in there for Christmas. And they, like, they don't really, they have hardly anything for Kwanzaa. So I think that I would just probably want them to recognize some stuff that's already out there that they kind of ignore. That would be my feeling. That's a great idea. I, I find myself saying that every single time, but it is. That's a great idea. Thank you. This is the part where you tell everybody where to find you. 
So my website is www.assumikosalson.com. That's S-U-M-I-K-O-S-A-U-L-S-O-N.com. And I am Sumiko Ska, that's S-U-M-I-K-O-S-K-A, on most social media. So that's what I'm listed as on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I'm having lots of fun on TikTok. I think it's great for me, especially as a cartoonist. But on Instagram, I'm Sumiko Salson, so it's at Sumiko Salson there. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. And thank you, dear listener. Thank you for your time because I know it's valuable. If you can take another two minutes, log into Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and review. It would help the show grow. Remember, you can contact me at Does all one word, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a question or suggestion, you can also contact me at Does again, all one word, at gmail.com. Next week's guest is Alicia McCullough. She's a strong activist in the movement to diversify science fiction and fantasy. Also, her talents will be on display in the upcoming anthology, Slay, Stories of the Vampire Noir. Join us next week when we talk dark fantasy, horror, and superheroes. So, until next time, see it, hear it, speak it, live.